Job chapter 8, and this week we come to the second of uh, Job's friends. We saw last week uh, Eliphaz. We're going to look at Bildad this week. Next week we're going to look at Zophar. You're probably aware that there's actually a fourth friend as well. We'll get to him later. He's Elihu. Uh, we'll we'll take a look at, at Bildad this week, Zophar next week. Uh, it will be Job after that, and then we'll look at Elihu Um Really, as we look at these three friends especially, the big takeaway is don't do what they did. That's that's the big takeaway. Let's pray. Uh, but this is this is really what we see. We see a lot of times examples in the Bible of things that we are not to do. Um, sometimes we see good examples of ways to bring God glory through faithfulness. But a lot of times we also see examples of things we should not be doing. First uh, Corinthians 10.6 talks about the immorality of the Israelites who came out of Egypt, who came through the the Red Sea when it was parted. And Paul says, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So what Paul's basically saying is, you remember those Israelites? Yeah, don't do what they did. Take a look at the whole book of Exodus. Don't follow them. Follow God's command, but don't follow what they did. And even in that, we need to be careful um, as we look at the Bible, because the Bible is not primarily a handbook on morality. A lot of times we can look at the Bible as just like our handbook of morality. And there's a lot of morality in the Bible, a lot of morality that we should not be doing and a lot of morality that we should be doing. But really, we need to understand as we look through the Bible, everything about the Bible points to Jesus, our Savior. And either our morality is what requires salvation because we are immoral or we are living a spirit-filled life that is producing the fruit of salvation that has occurred in our life. But all of it revolves around Christ. And as we're going to see this morning, really there's often no greater proof of salvation than what comes out of our mouth. One of the ways that we know that we have been changed by the Spirit of God is is what comes out of our mouth. The gospel is a gospel of redemption. It's a gospel that impacts our heart. It transforms us from the inside. We become new creatures. And so when we become new creatures, we're made new through faith in the risen Jesus. That is expressed in really two ways. One is obedience and one is by what we say. So those two sort of things are how... Really, we know that we have been changed by the Holy Spirit. We now live a life of repentance to the glory of God. Part of that repentance is what comes out of our mouths. I think we've probably all had those situations. I had this, this situation this week. I was at, I was at the coffee shop and I was talking to this guy and we were talking for maybe five minutes or so. And, and I'm like, you know, I don't know for sure, but if I were a betting man, I'd bet at the very least he goes to church. Is he saved or not? I don't know. Just based on what was and was not coming out of his mouth. We can understand how the gospel impacts people from their heart. And when our hearts are changed, then what comes out of our mouth is changed as well. This guy, his conduct, his graciousness, his attitude, what he did say, what he didn't say, led me to believe, hey, maybe there's something here. The average believer wouldn't say things like this. Well, lo and behold, he was actually a Christian. We started talking about the gospel with each other. We can't always do that. But what comes out of our mouth is fruit of what is in our heart. And as followers of Jesus, we should be concerned about what flows from our lips because it, what flows from our lips either pleases God or it grieves 
God. We should be growing in gracious speech, growing in kind speech, growing in loving speech. All of that should be growing in our lives. Sadly, the example of these friends we see in Job is just the opposite. They grow in time in harshness. They grow in time uh, with gracelessness. As, as time goes on, they get more and more harsh towards Job. Are they, are they believers? Maybe. Maybe they are. We're not, we're not a hundred percent sure. Uh, they sure know a whole lot about God, even though a lot of what they say is misquoted. At the end of the book, it's interesting that God is gracious to them and basically says, hey, if you guys bring some sacrifices to Job and Job sacrifices on your behalf, then I will forgive your sin. So even then, God is merciful toward these men, but we don't do what they did. I, I don't have a strict outline per se for this morning. I just kind of want to walk through uh, basically the three chapters in Job that detail for us what Bildad said. So it's chapter 8, it's chapter 18, and then it's chapter 25. Um, and, and Bildad is given uh, roughly two and a half chapters. The last chapter you'll see is only only a handful of verses. Mercifully, Bildad knows when to be quiet, and eventually he doesn't say anymore. Um, again, to, to get a little bit of a context for this book, I, I think we're familiar with it, but, but when we just launch into what Bildad says, we just have to realize how callous it is. Remember, maybe a little more than a week ago, Job lost all ten of his kids. They're dead. He's lost almost all of his property, almost all of his servants. He's left with his wife, who is really nagging and inciting him to idolatry, to curse God and die. He's covered head to toe in these boils that are so gross, he's scraping them off of him to get some sort of comfort. His buddies show up. The grief is so great that they are silent for a week. That's the best thing they ever did. And then they open their mouth and they start going at him. He opens his mouth, Job does, remember, with just a wish that he was dead. He doesn't want to live anymore. He doesn't want to go on anymore. He's just had too much. And just just place yourself in that situation. If you had a friend who had just lost absolutely everything, what would you do? And what would you say? How would you comfort them? Well, these guys, they weep for a week with Job, and then they basically let him have it. The three main argument, or the three friends, uh, make one big argument overall in the book. And, and this is the argument of what's called the retribution principle. And we talked about this a little bit. The retribution principle is that the person who sins, God will judge. And the person who lives a righteous life, God will reward. That's the retribution principle. We see it over and over again throughout the book of Job. So there's the negative part, which is if you sin, God will judge. There's the positive part, which is if you do well, God will reward you. Now, the question is, is the retribution principle true? Well, it's kind of complicated, actually. In an ultimate sense, it is true. In an ultimate sense, God will finally judge. All those who are unrighteous will be judged. They'll be cast into hell. Those are the goats. And all those who, through faith, um, in Christ will be judged righteous. They will be brought into heaven. God will ultimately settle all accounts justly. But what about in this life? Well, sometimes. Sometimes he does. Wicked people do, in fact, prosper, don't they? I mean, good night. Jeffrey Epstein had an island. He had his own island. 
That's incredible wealth. And he was a disgusting human being. So we look to the ultimate settling of all accounts, even though there may be some of that here. We know that there are people who are in prison wrongly. They're convicted wrongly. So we know it goes both directions. In this life, it doesn't go always the way that we wish it were. So the retribution is true in the greatest scheme of things, the long-range scheme of things, but it's not always true and played out in day-to-day life. Now, let's take a look at what Bildad says, what he opens up with, which I think if you, again, if you think about the situation, what Job is going through is really just astonishing what he has to say. So let's read through the first seven verses here of chapter eight and get, and get an idea for what he says. Then Bildad, the Shuhite answered and said, how long will you say these things in the words of your mouth? Be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. I don't know if you could pack more offensive things into seven little verses than what Bildad says. I mean, the the first thing that he says coming out is, Job, your words are really nothing more than wind. Job, you are a blowhard. You've lost it all. Whatever. Stop talking. That's what he says. Your words are just wind. It's pretty harsh out of the gate. It's not, hey, I I can't imagine what you're going through, but maybe you consider this. Not, I'm sorry for your loss. The first thing that we have on record with Bildad saying is an insult to Job, given the enormity of what he has lost. Verse 2 is sort of a nod to that retribution principle that I mentioned just a couple of minutes, minutes ago. Does God pervert justice? And what he's implying is just like Eliphaz, like what we saw last week is... God doesn't pervert justice. He's giving you what you deserve, Job. That's really what he's getting at. Again, it's kind of the back door in there. Verse four is really so over the top offensive. It's hard to even know where to begin. He says, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgressions. You know what he's saying? He's saying your kids got what they deserved. All 10 of them. They got exactly what was coming to them. I mean, why in the world would a person ever say anything like that in that kind of a tragedy? Why would you say that? Of all the things to toss in there to rebuke Job, is to say, your kids got what was coming. It's very, very offensive. Yeah, I mean, They're dead. Even if it was patently true, even if you knew it on the face of it, why, why would you say those things. I don't know if you caught any of the social media shortly after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, but some of the things that Christians said about her were very offensive. They were incredibly offensive. Now, I don't agree with her judicial philosophy. I don't agree with her worldview. I, we have probably zero in common, except that we're both short. Like, I think that's about the only thing that we have in common. However, some of the things that were coming out of the mouths of Christians were just disgusting. And a couple of days ago, Sean Connery dies, and about half of his career was making soft pornography films, and everybody's like, oh man, we'll miss Sean. It's like, 
wait a minute, what are we talking about? The, the things that, that we're inconsistent on and then how we talk about those things is very, very offensive. We need to be very careful how we talk about things. I think a lot of times in our own self-righteousness, we think that we can speak the truth in any situation no matter what. The truth just needs to be told. You see this with like watch bloggers and stuff like that who come out with all sorts of salacious things about people. We need to be bombastic and sharp in order to get the point across. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that could not be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. Sometimes it's actually better to not say anything. That's Ecclesiastes 3.7. There is a time to speak and there is also a time to keep silence. That's what Solomon says. I had a friend one time tell me that you cannot unring a bell. And that's how speech is. You ring the bell. You can ask for forgiveness. You can try and make it up. But you've already said what you've said. And it's out there. And it hurts. We're commanded in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in what? In love. Speak the truth in love. Every single word that we say should be a manifestation of love to those around us. Everything that Jesus said was love. He is, in fact, love. Now, sometimes it was pretty tough love, wasn't it? You go look at Matthew 23, where he's taking the Pharisees and the scribes to task. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, sons of hell. There is a time for that. But there's also a time for very gentle and tender love. But it was always love with Jesus. It's always love with God, even if he's rebuking. Is that true of our speech? Can we honestly say that our speech is coming out as a manifestation of love? It's certainly not true with Bildad. His speech was not loving. And there's a good chance his, his speech wasn't even true. Bildad says, maybe, maybe God gave them what they deserved. Maybe that's what happened. Well, everything that we see in chapter 1 indicates that these were actually godly kids. They were kind. They were generous. They loved one another. They invited each other over into their house. And remember when Job was sacrificing for them, he wasn't sacrificing for sins that he knew about. He was sacrificing for them on the off chance they drank a little bit too much wine and maybe said some things about God in their heart that they shouldn't have said. They weren't even saying it out loud. This was maybe somewhere in their heart they've said something that they shouldn't have said. These are, these are arguably very good kids. Why would we attack them in a rebuke? Why would build that? Well, it's certainly not led by the Spirit. Bildad is just a litany of bad things to do. The next thing we see Bildad doing is he his argument for why he is right is actually an appeal to tradition. It's an appeal to tradition. Notice what he does in verses 8 through 10. He says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages... And consider what the fathers have searched out. So talking about the old old guys. For we are of but yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? So what he's doing, he's creating this platform of, see, all the old guys said this. And, and what the old guys all said is what's about to follow. But this is an appeal to tradition. Just ask, just ask the old guys. They're all wise. If they're old, they must be wise. If they're dead, they must be even wiser. All the people behind us had to have gotten it correct. 
And what I'll set up again at the end of the chapter is this retribution principle. I'll, I'll balance this out in a minute, but let me just say an appeal to tradition is one of the laziest arguments anybody can ever make. It's really a lazy argument. It's, it's not much of an argument at all, really. What, what, what Bildad is saying is, see, this is what everybody's always said. It's, it's almost like a tautology where you're going, well, it just is what it is. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for telling us what everybody already has said. That doesn't answer the question of whether or not it's true. That's the issue. Is what the old people, the dead people, the fathers from long ago, is, is that actually true? And what's interesting is he actually even throws in this like little dose of pseudo humility in verse nine. He says, we are of but yesterday. We're young and we're dumb. What could we possibly know? We don't know a thing. Listen to the older people. And again, maybe this goes without saying, but older people can be wrong. Like, like dead people can be wrong. I, I don't know if you know this. I have, I have an app on my phone and, and the, on, on the app is the constitution of the United States. And one of the things that is patently obvious is that older generations got things wrong. Black people are not three fifths of a person. Thomas Jefferson would have us believe so. And a lot of the founders would have us believe that's not true. Apparently women were not able to vote for 150 years after it was ratified and people couldn't make up their mind. Is, is alcohol legal or is it illegal? We just don't know. Older people were wrong. And I think you guys know that tradition can affect the church as well. Who's in charge? What color the walls are? What color the carpet is? On and on it goes. A lot of these arguments of tradition are not rooted in any sort of biblical standard at all. It's just rooted in this is what we've always done without any self-reflection to see if God has weighed in on is this even right? Should we be doing this? Now, here's the balance is just because we've already uh, always done something a particular way doesn't mean it's wrong either. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Maybe it's really a good way, but it should be open to evaluation. It's okay to ask people, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do this? Is this the right thing to do? But tradition is not the final answer. Interestingly, in the Bible, you'll see this word tradition. You can go look it up. The tradition is often used in, in kind of different ways. Sometimes tradition is a bad thing. It's a man-made tradition. So you remember Jesus getting on the Pharisees for not supporting their elderly parents. So they, they take the money that they should be given their elderly parents and they give it to the temple or the synagogue. And they go, see, I, I'm taking care of God rather than taking care of my parents. This is Corbin. And so I can do whatever I want with it. And Jesus goes, well, that's a fine way of setting aside the word of God for man-made tradition and uses that word. In other places, Paul commends people by saying, you hold fast to the traditions. And the traditions he has in mind are actually biblical commandments. And so we have to understand, are our traditions in line with biblical commandments, or are, do our traditions actually set aside biblical commandments? So traditions are not wrong intrinsically. We just have to know if our traditions are actually in line with Scripture. And we have to make sure that they are. And we hold to traditional marriage. What do we mean by that? Biblical marriage. So in that sense, tradition and biblical are lined up. One man, one woman for life. So those are, those are good things. So we, we don't have to throw out all things just because it is traditional. We need to evaluate it. 
So Bildad appeals to Job to listen to the older generations. Interestingly enough, the older generation that he quotes agrees with him. How convenient is that? Notice what he says. I won't make a lot of comment on this, but just notice what he says. Notice if you can see the the retribution principle. Verse 11. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. It's just torn apart easily. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will fill, he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Verse 22, those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Again, so he quotes the old generation who happens to agree with him. It is just the retribution principle. If we didn't know Bildad any better, we'd probably think he just believed in karma, like some sort of instant karma, like God will, God will get you. He says those, those who are evil, they're, they're like papyrus, right? They're, those are like big reeds, like the cattails you see around, around a lake or something, except they're taller. They're like 15 feet tall. And as long as there's water, those things are tall and they're massive. The minute the water's gone, they just fall over like nothing. He's like, and he's saying that's what happens when people disobey God. God will lift them up as long as they're doing well. The minute, the minute they start sinning, God will just blow them over. It's just not true. It's just not true, but that's the retribution principle he has in mind here. And his last word here in this chapter is, just do what's right and God will bless you. He'll bring it all back. What are you talking about? He'll bring it all back. No, it doesn't work that way. Go over to chapter 18. This is Bildad's second go-round. And this entire chapter, all 21 verses, is dedicated to the retribution principle in a negative way. If you sin, God will, in fact, judge you. If you sin, God will, in fact, judge you. Um, and, and again, this is the chief mode of argumentation that these friends make, is the retribution principle. If you're doing evil, God will judge you instantly. We've seen what's happened in your life, so you must have done evil. And then the flip side of the retribution principle is just do what's right and God will bless you. I just want to make two observations rather than elaborating more on the retribution principle itself. I I want to make two observations. The first is notice how Bildad puts words in Job's mouth. This is a very dangerous argumentation style, and I think we would do well to, to consider it. But look at verses one and four of chapter 18 or one through four. Then Bildad, the Shuai answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or the rock be removed out of its place? You see what Bildad said? Basically, why do you think we're stupid? 
Do you think we're cows? You must think we're cows. That's what you must think because that's how you're treating us. That's your responses. And, and one of the things that we see throughout the, the argumentation, there, there's the retribution principle as a whole, but there's all these logical fallacies that these guys, these guys go through. Um, and, and it's no different. They're, they are putting words in Job's mouth. They are framing the argument. And just as a side note, I could not for the life of me figure out exactly which logical fallacy this is, where you basically frame someone else's position. So if you were in high school or younger and you can tell me what the logical fallacy is with a little bit of citation, I will give you a candy bar. Okay? So I want to know what it is. I don't know if it's poisoning the well or ad hominem or whatever, but this is the most common types of poor argumentation is, well, you must think I'm blank if you say that about me. That's what he's saying. Now you're not even talking about the issue, are you? You're talking about the thoughts and intentions of somebody's heart, which may or may not even be true. Maybe Job does think they're a bunch of cows. Maybe he does think they're all stupid. And by the way, that's the word the Bible uses. That doesn't make his point right or wrong. Maybe he is right. He can still be right thinking that they are foolish. But this is really what it boils down to. This is really just a false accusation. It's a form of slander. That's what it is. You are attributing to somebody something that you don't know whether it's true or not. And you're not even arguing about the point itself. You're talking about a perception. So what, what it ends up being is, is that we're insulting this person by accusing them of insulting us. Does that make sense? You must think I'm a cow. You must think I'm stupid if this is your position. Again, it doesn't make the, the point true or not. The other thing that doesn't make their argument true is to keep repeating it over and over again. To keep piling on over and over and over again. This is basically what they keep doing. Is they keep making the same argument over and over and over again. By now you know what the retribution principle is. But I I just want to read a little bit of this. And and you see like he just keeps saying the same thing over and over. Verse 5. Indeed the light of the wicked is put out. And the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and he is brought to the king of terrors. And he just goes on. The the wicked are just instantly punished. Everything about their, their way is hedged up and it's blocked. Well, if that was the case, wouldn't people just stop doing wickedness? No, the reason people do wickedness is like, hey, we can make a pretty good life being wicked. And a lot of people do make a pretty good life being wicked. But he just assumes, like I said, some sort of instant karma. There's a there's an old saying in preaching and politics, weak point, yell here. Right? If you can't make a strong point, just say it louder. That'll get it across. And people of weak minds will actually take that up and go, oh yeah, he's... Man, he was fiery. There might be a lot of heat, but there's no light. There's no information. There's nothing that actually moves the conversation along. 
But this is the road that the friends are going. Turn over to chapter 25. Chapter 25. Mercifully, Bildad only says six more verses before being quiet. And interestingly, this is actually the last time the first three friends say anything. So you remember at the beginning, Job wanted to die, and then then it went Eliphaz, then Job responded, Bildad, then Job responded, then it'll be Zophar, then Job responds. That happens three times, except Zophar doesn't say anything the third time. He just kind of gives up. So this is actually the last time the first of the three friends have to say, and it's and it's very very short. I think Bildad just basically realizes, hey, this guy is not going to be convinced. I don't, I don't have anything else really to say. So verse 20, or chapter 25, excuse me. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and he said, dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. You know what his argument is? It's basically like, look, buddy, nobody's nobody's perfect. Everybody's got sin of some kind. And he even uses a little hyperbole there, doesn't he? He says even even the moon is not pure and the stars are not pure. Well, he's not saying that the stars are are guilty of sin. He's just saying that because God is so holy and he is so awesome and sinfulness has infected really every person, God can find fault in basically everyone. So he's finding fault in you, Job. Maybe we don't know what it is, but at the end of the day, you got something going on. That's what we know about this. And in the end, Bildad offers nothing that is helpful to Job. And as I, as I read through these guys, I think the thing that continually shocks me about all three of them is how absolutely tone deaf they are to the situation that Job is going through. Even as I, I study through this last, last several weeks, you'd think they would just be able to look at this guy who is covered in head to toe with boils that have been scraped off with a pot shard and go, you know, maybe we should take it easy on him. But they all come out of the gate swinging and they swing harder and harder as time goes on. They are graceless. They ridicule him, even when he is in agony. And I think the thing that we need to take in mind and keep close to our hearts is when we see someone going through a difficult time and we don't know the whole thing, the thing that we should lead with is grace. Is grace and encouragement and humility. No matter where they are, if they're in the wrong, we'll figure that out. God will figure that out. But I don't think we'll ever stand before the throne of God and God will be like, you know, why were you so merciful to that person? Why were you so gracious in speech to that person? Man, you should have been just harder on them. You should have, you should have accused their kids of being guilty of something. I don't, I don't think we're ever going to stand before the throne of grace and be chided that we showed grace to God's people. This is what Jesus did. He showed comfort and care. He healed people who never repented. He encouraged people who never came back to him. He showed grace. And as his people, we should do the same no matter the situation. Let's pray. Father, we pray that on our tongue would be grace toward those who are in difficult situations. That you would give us wisdom to comfort and encourage those who are going through a hard time, no matter what that hard time is. 
If we need to speak truth, Lord, may we do so graciously and gently, but may it be wrapped in love. And may you be honored by all that comes out of our mouth because it originates in the heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.